Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Rick Collenberg, a senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute, joins us to discuss how exclusionary zoning policies price poor people out of high-quality neighborhoods and schools. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses new research that examines the effects of upfront cash payments on teacher recruitment and retention. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Wait, what about you, Amber? There's too much, there's so much crosstalk. It was like a Republican debate. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now please welcome our special guest for this week, Richard Kallenberg. Rick, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Mike. Yeah, Rick is a senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute, and he is here to discuss his latest book, which is titled Excluded, How Snob Zoning, Nimbyism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. Woo! Also joining us as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and I think I'm probably guilty on all counts. So look at, <laughs> <laughs> look at you. You're a snob, you're a NIMBY, you've got class bias, all of that. I don't know. We'll find out. We we will find out. Well, you know, I I well I should say David lives on Capitol Hill, which is one of these very interesting neighborhoods that's gentrifying. Well, we'll talk about is is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's uh, I don't know. We'll 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 get into this, but that is what we're going to talk about today. Rick is a bunch of housing policy, and you're going to explain to our audience who came here to hear about education policy why they should care about housing. But first, let me also just say by way of introduction, you've written. You know, so many books. What are you up to? It's like almost twenty, right? Well, eighteen, but who's who's counting? That includes the edited volume. So I've I've inflated my number a little bit. You're up there in the you know Checker Finn and Rick Hess category for sure, and uh, in, including your just magisterial uh, biography of Albert Shanker, and also you know several books. I think at least one book, if not more than that, on affirmative action. I should say you've become somewhat. Famous, uh, policy wonk famous recently uh, for testifying in the Students for Fair Admissions case, a rare liberal who wants to see the end to race-based affirmative action uh, because you prefer class-based affirmative action. Yes. It's not so much that I want to end race-based. It's more that that I think that universities avoid these, these huge class divides in our country. And just as a practical matter, the way to get to class-based affirmative action was to to end race-based affirmative action. You could, in theory, you could do both, but universities never do that. They'd much take, rather take the cheap route, which is to bring together fairly rich students of all races, which is better than all white, uh, but it's still not enough. It's not not genuine equal opportunity, in my view. Well, this is the same theme that runs in through this new book, which is about how do we get uh, to the point where our neighborhoods and thus our schools are more socioeconomically diverse. So let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Rick, so so you say, and, and this is tough, right? You say, look, we, we basically are spending all of our time in education reform trying to make separate but uh, separate but equal work. Right. That uh, we've just accepted as a given that we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, socioeconomically isolated high poverty schools, uh, which also tend to be racially isolated. And we're just trying hard to make them work uh, as well as we can. And we've seemed to have given up on really trying to find a way to integrate our schools. And, and the problem is 
I mean, you've been in favor of various forms of public school choice and, and lots of different things that, that can make some difference on the margins to try to make that more likely. But uh, look, fundamentally, the issue is that our neighborhoods are are so divided by race and class. And so that's what brings you to housing. Is, is that a fair way to say it? Absolutely. So 73% of students attend a neighborhood public school. Uh, the rest, you know, go to private school or, or some sort of public school of choice. So I've focused much of my career on, on that, that quarter and trying to make sure that public school choice can promote integration. And in some cases it can, there are diverse by design charters. There are uh, theme-based magnet schools that can bring kids of different backgrounds together. But ultimately I kept butting my head against the fact that most people like neighborhood public schools. And so if you want integrated public schools in America, you have to chip away at, at housing segregation. And chip away, that's a good way of putting it because this is really hard. I mean, you know, we spend our days worried about education reform, which is really hard. This seems just as hard, if not harder. I mean, you know, you, as as you say in the title, you've got the NIMBY dynamic, you've got exclusionary zoning. Even if you win some political victories, which are starting to happen in some places, you know, the payoff, it's going to be years, if not decades, before you build the housing and enough housing to make a difference. And then, you know, that, that the kids are old enough to be in school and then that this has could have an impact on their education. I mean, it, it feels so indirect. It feels like a bank shot. So, I mean, again, why why should our audience, people who are out there, say, education advocates or educator, educational leaders, pay attention to this issue? It, it feels like it's, uh, you know, pushing the, per, the proverbial boulder up the mountain. Yeah, well, I guess I'm not quite as pessimistic as you are on this, Mike. Um, so we've we've seen tremendous change uh, in the last five years or so. So when I started researching this book on exclusionary zoning, which I should define as the policies that uh, that consciously and unconsciously seek to keep people of different economic groups apart. So things like single-family only neighborhoods where it's illegal to build up a duplex or a triplex. When I started writing uh, Excluded, there were not a whole lot of examples of success, of reform. Uh, so NIMBY's almost always won. And that was kind of an iron rule in American politics that social scientists would say exclusionary zoning is terrible for a lot of reasons. It increases segregation and artificially increases housing prices. Lots of conservatives hate exclusionary zoning for those reasons too. But uh, but politically, it was a dead end. And now we see in place after place after place, Minneapolis, California, Oregon, uh, changes in, in the zoning laws. And the reason is because even middle class people, you know, young people who are middle class, college educated, they can't afford housing. And so that's what's driving the political change, but it can have a big impact on uh, on integration as as well. And neighborhoods are constantly changing. I mean, there you see it oftentimes. Starter homes are torn down, and instead they build a McMansion. Well, instead, if you start building some multifamily housing, then you're going to see more economic integration, more opportunities, and uh, and reduced school segregation. And, and the payoff can be enormous. I mean, you and I have, have talked over the years about this Montgomery County experiment where they tried spending more money on the, on the public schools uh, in the high poverty neighborhoods, and that had some positive impact. But much more powerful was letting uh, low income and working class people attend economically integrated schools. That was, that's where the big payoff is. Right. And although we can talk about it, it's hard. That's a hard thing to study. And I can have some quibbles with, with some of the research on that. But but like you say, uh, look, 
even if even if the research is questionable, and and I think you're right that it's gotten better that economically integrated schools that the poor kids do better than they otherwise would, uh, even if that weren't the case, you know, it's the right thing to do, right? I mean, we would say, well, we, it's, a, it's a good thing to have happen anyways. Uh, and yet it's so hard. I mean, so I mentioned at the top that David's on Capitol Hill, you know, I wrote a book about called The Diverse Schools Dilemma. This was about, what, 12 years ago. And, you know, this was one of those neighborhoods that was really changing fast, at least parts of Capitol Hill that were going, uh, you know, and, and you had a whole influx of wealthy families moving in, most of whom were white and Asian, though not all, but most. Uh, and the schools on Capitol Hill used to largely serve Black students who were coming from across the Anacostia River, and now they're getting pushed out, right? And so, yes, neighborhoods are changing, but it just feels like this challenge of what some conservatives would say is social engineering uh, to try to make sure that it doesn't go too far in one direction or the other. And yet this is this reflects personal choices and preferences. And so it, it feels like it's so hard to get this Goldilocks period where we get uh, just the right amount of diversity that will get buy in from lots of different groups of people uh, and it won't swing one way or the other. I mean, am I wrong to be pessimistic about that? You are wrong on that. <laughs> um, so uh, there is that is the kind of the the media narrative is gentrification leads to displacement. All black neighborhoods turn over and become all white neighborhoods and gentrifying communities. That almost never happens. It does happen sometimes, but it almost never happens. And typically the displacement is on the order of 1%. I mean, the key is that you make enough housing so that when newcomers come into a community, they don't automatically displace uh, other people. And so uh, if you have enough housing, then you don't see that widespread displacement. Uh, but there are the studies by Ingrid Gould Ellen and Lance Freeman and others that find that the uh, the actual displacement in Philadelphia, New York City, other places is very, very, very rare and low. Let's get David in here, in part, because let's let's face it, David, you you are walking the walk, unlike Rick and myself, who both uh, sent our kids to schools that were not terribly diverse uh, in Montgomery County. You are there on Capitol Hill and, and you've got kids, your, your son in a charter school that is quite diverse, right? That's more or less accurate. I was trying to give myself a grade as, as Rick was talking, right? I mean, it all does feel very personal to me right now because we, we recently had to, to make a choice about preschool. And without going into too much detail, the choice was basically to keep paying through the nose um, for what the moral equivalent of a private school, right? Or or to send um, our, our oldest kid to a, a reasonably, certainly a racially diverse, a reasonably socioeconomically diverse charter school. They do exist. And, and we ultimately went with the latter. So... It is possible, right? Um, but I also, I, I'm familiar enough with DC's school choice landscape to know that this this is kind of the exception to the rule, right? There aren't a ton of these schools floating around. I guess I'm just curious to know, like, wh how you see, you know, you're sort of making the, the, the case, Rick, that the we have to work on the housing side too, right? Rather than, but I guess, it's, does, is school choice sort of undoing the, the thing that you're talking about, even as you're as you're stitching it together? I mean, I, I don't have quite such an optimistic take on even, even school choice, even though I'm for it. I, I guess I guess I just worry that, you know, that it is a kind of a collective action problem and it's it's tough to maintain the balance. H how do you see it, I guess? Yeah, I think that's right, that if you look at the literature on school choice, that choice that is uh, completely unregulated, has no 
fairness guidelines attached to it often leads to higher levels of segregation, not less segregation. And so the answer to that is, uh, is in putting in place some fairness guidelines so that people are choosing schools based on the, the actual, you know, program that the school offers as opposed to what they think the socioeconomic or racial makeup of the school is going to be. And so the, the most successful example of this is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they have universal choice. Everyone chooses a school. You rank your, uh, choices one, two, and three. And then, uh, there are fairness guidelines in place to make sure that there's a, an economic mix in the school district. And that's uh, that's been a stable program that's been around for decades. And uh, not everyone is happy with it, but most people are, are quite happy with it. Well, and I guess that just leads to the next question, which is why? <laughs> what, you know, I mean, you, you can point to these to, to these examples of places that have been doing this for decades, but the sort of trillion dollar question is why? Like, I mean, most, if, if it were easy, right, most of America would be doing it already. So what do you think is, is it just something in the water? I, I'm really curious to know what you think. So uh, it requires a commitment to integration. And I don't know that as a nation, we've, we've had that commitment. I think if you talk to young parents uh, like yourself, more are interested in an in integrated school as we become a much more diverse society. People are recognizing they want their kids to, uh, to be equipped to live in a multiracial, multicultural society. There are benefits to integration. And so, uh, so we, we see more of a, a possibility for it than we have in, in the past. Uh, but, but ultimately, I do think it comes back to trying to eliminate some of the exclusionary barrier that, barriers that government puts in place. Right. This is not uh, just a collective active action question. This is this is government policies uh, that uh, actively exclude people by making it illegal to build the types of housing that people want where they want it. And that would lead to more more integrated neighborhood schools. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, very well said, Rick. Hey, it's always fun talking to you and congrats on the new book. Which again, let me make sure I, I get this right. It's a long title. It is called Excluded, How Snob Zoning, Nimbyism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. You should go check it out. Rick, I hope you come back on the show sometime soon. Okay, great. Well, thank, thanks for having me, guys. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So I don't think we've had a chance to talk about this yet. What everybody tunes into this show for, they want to know what we think about Tay Tay and Travis Kelsey. <laughs> Is that what they want to know? <laughs> David's burying his head in his hands right now. <laughs> so already annoyed. Can I just oh my gosh. express my general disinterest and be done with it? Uh. See, I think this is great for America. When we can be distracted by, you know, pop stars and football stars dating, uh, it keeps our eye away from the government shutdown. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess one question is, who do you like more, Travis Kelsey or Taylor Swift? Uh, it, I only I know who one of those people of, is, Mike. So right, never I'm going to go with Travis. Travis. Wait, what about you, Amber? There's too much. There's so much crosstalk. It was like a Republican debate. What's going on? No, I said I'd never heard of Travis Kelsey before Taylor Swift. That's what I said. Yeah. He, he was my first pick on my fantasy football team, and he's doing quite well for me. Thank you very much. Wow. All right. All right. Well, let's turn to education research, I suppose. <laughs> it's just as exciting, Mike. Um, we have a new study out in the Economics of Education Review Journal 
So uh, this is a rigorous one. Looks at whether providing upfront grants and loans to financially strap potential teachers encourages them to become a teacher and stay a teacher. So we know, I mean, everybody's sort of, this is getting some attention because of teacher shortages. Uh, You know, districts all over the country are trying to figure these things out. And recent federal data, which just was not known to me, apparently teacher prep programs enrollment dropped 35% between 2009 and 2014. So that was almost a decade ago. (laughs) So obviously the pandemic only made that worse. Um, So... Uh, What can we do? The study extends an earlier randomized study that found that upfront liquidity, nice word for cash and loans, uh, made it so that financially strapped teachers who applied to get into TFA were subsequently more likely to join TFA and show up to teach. So that answer was yes. So this new study goes back to the well. Well, I love when they do this. And now they're going to track them for a longer term. So they're going to continue to track the same teachers to see if they made it through their two-year TFA commitment and were more likely to remain. So the background is that TFA offers these transitional grants and loans to help cover the cost of transitional costs, which basically means the moving cost uh, going to the city where they've been assigned to teach. And the new study includes the highest need applicants who have applied for the grants, they've been accepted into TFA, and they've agreed to join. And when they agree to join, that's when they get the money. So TFA collects a ton of financial information on grant applicants. They figure out how much grant money versus loan money that they qualify for. And they tell the kids or the students or the the young people uh, that they have to pay it back in January of their first year of teaching. And they typically repay it over 18 months. So TFA's got some kind of algorithm, figures out how much the applicant's going to need to move to a particular city. That's the expected expense, then how much the candidate can afford, then they subtract the latter from the former, and they determine TFA's grant and loan amount for that individual. Again, the sample is uh, those in the bottom decile of need. So the average applicant, this was really eye-opening, the average applicant has $241 in their banking account, $6,500 in credit card debt, and $20,000 in federal student loan debt. So the original randomization that they stick with called for these higher need applicants to be equally randomized into three groups, a baseline grant package for each individual using this modified version of their formula that they have, and they're the control group. Then you've got a treatment group that gets the grant package baseline plus an additional 600 bucks. And then you got another one that gets the grant package baseline with an additional 600 bucks in loans. And then the second year, they add another arm to the study where the applicants could get an additional $1,200 beyond the baseline package. And so ultimately, the design combines the variation from all these different treatment conditions because it gets pretty confusing. And they estimate the extra funding in hundreds of dollars. Uh, They also compare the loan and grant amounts. And they basically said, you know what? They find that the total amount matters the most. So they're not going to worry about whether you got it in grant money or loan money. And just to give you some context, the mean total award for the sample was $4,000. For the first decile, it was $5,000 total. And for the 10th decile, it was $2,200 total. All right, now we get to the bottom line. 
Uh, they dig, they have this survey data where they TFA tracks these folks. And then for those folks, they don't have the data. They did some scraping of LinkedIn, <laughs> which was, wow, had to be difficult. But after all that grunt work, they managed to get data on 85% of their applicant pool. Uh, the old study found that the highest, just another little factoid, the old study found that the highest need individuals were 1.8 percentage points more likely to begin teaching with TFA for every 100 bucks in additional liquidity. Now, this new longitudinal study finds that the same effect on teaching persists. So it increased the rate teachers persist in year one and ultimately completed year two. The effect persisted at nearly its full size over time, as there was still a 1.53 percentage point impact on completing the two-year program for every 100 bucks in additional liquidity that a prospective teacher was offered. So that represented 85% of the 1.8 percentage point effect of the beginning to teach that the last study you know, found. And so it suggests that this effect persists multiple years after the additional liquidity was offered. Year three data, because I was really interested in that. <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, they're, unfortunately, they're less reliable. They don't have as good a data as they did for the tracking of the prior years. And it also happens to be when their TFA commitment officially ends. So you can't really suss out the intervention's effect. Uh, bottom line, uh, offering financially strapped teachers funds in the months before they assume teaching can increase the number of teachers in the short and midterm. But obviously, I was left going, okay, this, this is TFA. Could it work outside of the TFA context? I'm really not up to speed. Maybe you guys are on other studies that have done these similar transitional costs uh, ahead of time before teachers teach and, and what they actually found. All right. Well, that is encouraging. And that is interesting that the same effects persisted. Uh, I don't see why it wouldn't work in other, you know, for other teachers, though, you know, part of the question here is how do you how do you fund something like this? You know, I mean, we would say that, oh, this would save districts money in the long term, perhaps, if they could lower their recruitment costs by retaining more teachers, for example, you know, but, uh, you know, does does the money actually work? I mean, I don't know if they actually spend enough money on recruitment that that the retention bonus would be helpful. Uh, but it does, it reminds me of back when we used to talk about impact bonds and things like this, where, you know, somebody would put up money uh, for something that has a high upfront cost. And then if it had a positive social impact later on or saved money for the government later on, then they would get those bonds repaid. Maybe something you know like that could be used in this case. Yeah, Mike, I was going to make some sort of joke about whether loan sharks could help us get more people into teaching, right? But when I heard those figures, it wasn't funny anymore. I mean, that is just a shocking sort of account of you know, I guess it's young people's financial situation. Maybe it shouldn't shock us so much, um, but it is sobering. I, I guess I still have to be convinced that any of this generalizes to, to much else, right? I mean, we're talking about a very particular population of potential teachers with a very specific program. And I don't know, not all teachers are that young and not all of them are. I mean, there's obviously some sort of very, very sp significant selection process going on here. Where you're getting a particular type of person who, <clears throat> I guess, there's a marginal effect for with this sort of thing. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm with Amber. I am hesitant. Midterm is a generous way of characterizing still being in teaching after two years. That still feels pretty short term to me. 
And until we get to five to 10 years, I it's hard for me to see how any of that pencils out, really. Um, if anything, I would worry that we're, I don't want to say conning people, but like pulling people in based on, I mean, if if, if this really makes a difference to you, right, in, in, in terms of whether you want to be a teacher or not, I guess I just wonder if you're still going to be committed to it, you know, three or four years from now, right? Are we just bringing in people who are sort of marginally attached to the idea of teaching present company excluded, of course, <laughs> I, you know, I guess just, I just wonder, right. Like if, if it's really making that big a difference or if it's just sort of pushing people who uh, aren't sure whether they want to teach or not um, over the, over the threshold. And so that they're going to give it a shot. I don't know. Maybe that's too pessimistic a take, but. I mean, that's, that's like the larger critique of teach for America, right? I mean, they're only asking them to serve a couple of years. And so, and anybody that stays longer is considered gravy, right? That's like, oh, fantastic. We, we, you know, and or maybe they go in and they, you know, go teach at a charter school and eventually run a charter school. I mean, that's, you know, more wins, but, you know, it, that is the age old question. You know, even if it's just for a few years, are we still better off with these people than without? And if this kind of, you know, grants and loans helps, especially I assume on the diversity front uh, for some people that, you know, aren't able to get this kind of help from mom and dad uh, when they're right out of college, then, you know, that's part of the solution. Right. And that part of it is appealing to me, I'll say. Um, I guess I'm still, I mean, it. that goes to the generalizability point again, though, right? Because TFA is placing people in, you know, in places around the country, right? And mm -hmm. so there's a there's an upfront barrier to just getting there if you have $200 in your pocket that doesn't exist if you've just been offered a teaching job down the street, right? And so I guess I'm just... I don't know. I mean, I would I would assume that for most people who are looking for employment, a teaching job, however modest, is a step in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess I'm just not sure that that is necessarily a barrier if you're going to draw a paycheck immediately in, in your same community, right? Am I missing something here? Well, that's why I was curious about, you know, when we've done loan forgiveness, you know, for new teachers, or we have done, you know, similar kind of, you know, you get some move. I mean, we've done this in other studies. I mean, this is why I wish I knew. Um, sure, I'll, I'll look it up after this. But, you know, what those other ones have found, right, when you don't have, when you're not necessarily moving across the country. I think that's a, a valid point. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got. We got to go let uh, Amber go look up those studies. <laughs> <laughs> well, please do report back. All right. Well, until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.